Hey everyone, this is Chris Lim with the Theotech Podcast. I'm joined today with my co-founder and my sister, Natasha Lim. Natasha, welcome to the show. Thanks. Hello, everybody. So, Natasha, you are the first woman I've had on the Theotech Podcast in a long time. And it's just a pity that it's only until now that we finally get you on the show. Why is that? It's because I don't enjoy public speaking. You don't enjoy public speaking? Nope. Oh. Well, a podcast is more like a conversation, so I hope that you feel good on this call. Okay. Yeah. So anyway, you've been reading a book recently. I want you to share with our audience the name of the book and what you've been learning. I've been reading Quiet by Susan Cain, which is basically she's done some research about introversion and extroversion. And I'm not done with the book yet, so I can't talk extensively about it. But it's been an interesting read so far, just because I know I identify as introverted and the things that she writes about, the observations that she's made and the research that's been done so far. It's intriguing. It's funny to be to recognize yourself when you read a book. So what are some of those things that she says that you can really identify with? Well, one thing is public speaking <laughs> is something that a lot of introverts um, hate and avoid as much as possible. But it's not to say that introverts are bad at public speaking or that they avoid it. It's the, just a tendency, I think, that a lot of introverts feel. The thing that I'm currently reading right now is about this theory that introversion is is connected with the like reactivity of a person to their environment. So like if you're high reactive, meaning that ambient sound around you or just things that are like in your peripheral vision stuff like that it's just you're like highly sensitive to it and so you're just kind of reactive to those things and so for introverts you know you tend to want to be in a quiet space you tend to want to be in a place that you can control but for like extroverts they you know they like to be in loud places they like to be gregarious or whatever it is their environment doesn't affect them to that same extent. So they like probably are even oblivious to all those sounds. They're oblivious to like the loud music or whatever it is. They don't even realize that that's going on because they're, they're able to like move past that and just focus in on the thing that they want to focus in on. But for introverts, it's like they're like highly affected by all of these random things in their environment. And it's hard. It can be hard for them to focus. It can be hard for them to be able to do what they want to do. And so you know, they can be kind of fussy or they just like exit the environment. They just leave it. And like, that sounds like me. So you just leave whenever you're not happy. But, you know, that's something interesting. It sounds a little bit like uh, attention deficit disorder. Is kind it related of. to that at all? I don't know. I was thinking about that because obviously I'm not an expert in this. But I wonder if it is related. I mean, like part of this is like uh, how much of this is like a something physical, like something to do with your brain and how your brain can process information or exclude information from from affecting you. Okay. And like I think with ADHD and, and ADD and that kind of stuff, there probably there is like a, a physical, like a physiological thing that's happening, right? And so that's why you have medications or whatever it is that that target. I don't even know what's happening in those cases, but, but you have medication that can help people with ADD or ADHD. And that that's probably that's targeting something specific, right in the body. 
And so I wonder if it might be related, but I don't know. Mm. Okay. I wonder how does this also tie in, if I could tie it into other conversations that are more broadly applicable, because I know that a lot of people complain uh, about how the internet and our mobile phones are kind of just captivating our attention and constantly distracting us. Mm-hmm. And whether we have a ADHD or ADD or not, or whether we're introverted or extroverted, it seems like there's this broader thing that technology has done where it's been intentionally designed to capture as much of our attention as possible because that's how companies like Facebook and Google make money. Um, and they've been very effective at doing that. And so I wonder if from your book, you're reading about introversion and reactivity, um, does it? did they find anything about introverts or extroverts being more susceptible to those kinds of things that tech companies are doing to try to capture attention? I'm not sure. Like I said, I'm not, I'm not like all the way through the book. But one thing that they n- noticed was that introverts, you know, they may not share themselves, share share themselves in like uh, group settings or like public spaces, but online they they are you know able and willing to share their lives on social media, and like you know part of that might be because a lot of internet communication is text based, like you know they can think about what they want to say before they say mm. uh, versus mm-hmm. like if you're in a conversation. For an introvert, you want to be able to like to like think through your answer holistically and then say it like so eloquently, right? Like that's totally me. That's 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 the way that I would prefer. Um, and in person, in like with personal communication or like when you're live in front of other people, it's like really hard to do that. And so you just end up stumbling and you feel like you're just really in, in eloquent and a terrible person. But when you're online, you can think through the exact words you want to use. You can read it a bajillion times and then you can hit send. It's funny, like, I think the internet was built for introverts in some ways because, like, that's just, that's totally, like, the way that that introverts love to communicate. Well, so your question was about, you know, like, do I think that internet companies are using, like, are designing for our attention in a way that's, like, what, what is your question? I don't quite understand, I guess. I was just wondering if introverts are more susceptible to being taken advantage of through digital technology like Facebook notifications and stuff like that versus extroverts. And it's interesting that you brought up a different question, which is how the online world that's text-based and you don't really see people face-to-face and hear their voices or just kind of communicating ideas or words seems to be more conducive for introverts to open up than maybe face-to-face in-person interactions. Is that kind of what you're saying just now? Yeah. So it's almost like there's just too many signals to read when you're in person with someone, like body language, tone of voice, everything else going around you, and texting or chat rooms and things like that, or forums and emails, they just let you focus on what's being said mm-hmm. instead of having to worry about everything. Yeah. Yep. So it's it's kind of it's related to attention in some ways, you know, that whole reactivity thing that you were talking about. Yeah. But it seems like there's a lot of people who I know who have ADHD and they're very effective. They can learn. They're very successful in life. There's also introverts I know who can do public speaking, like you said, and there's extroverts I know who like to read. So it seems as if maybe these categories are kind of blurry. What do you think really does set apart introverts and extroverts in a more, I guess, tangible way? I mean, I know that the common definition would be like, do you do you find, ener- like, do you derive energy from being with other people or do you require like time with yourself to recharge? And I don't know, like that kind of feels 
like a good definition, but it also kind of, it sounds a little bit, I feel like it's missing something. Because like what you just said earlier for me was surprising because it sounded like it was more of the medium that determined if someone was an introvert or an extrovert. That like when you can mitigate it down to like one sensory input, they can really flourish in communication and engagement. And it's just the kind of the environment or the setting that determines how someone reacts or behaves. Yeah. And like, you know, I feel like with when we talk about introversion and extroversion, I think it's really just like another lens to understand ourselves to me. Like, you know, it's not going to be all encompassing. It's not going to like explain everything about who I am and like how I live my life or something like that. And the other part of this is, you know, like just because I, I'm an introvert or I have introverted tendencies, it doesn't mean that I can't learn to be a little bit more extroverted or I can't learn to behave more like an extrovert in other settings. Mm. So the other thing, the other thing that I read recently that was interesting was um, they're talking about like a researcher was doing brain scans of people and like what parts of the brain light up when they were showing like strange faces. So they just had like a bunch of pictures of different faces and like these were people that, that the subject does not know at all. Um, but what they did is they would show them in a series, just like, you know, random, and they would put in certain pictures multiple times. So those, so, you know, then those faces become familiar to the subject uh, through the course of the, you know, test, I guess. And so what was interesting is, you know, I think I forget which part of the brain it was. I think it was like the prefrontal cortex and the amygdala were the two parts of the brain that were you know, like lighting up all the time. And like, so I think the amygdala is related to like fear. And that's like, that's like your personal defense system, I guess, where you're like, and you're, you're in a strange place, like your amygdala is going to be on high alert and everything's going to be like, you know, sending you signals like, oh, watch out for this, watch out for that, watch out for this, watch out for that. Um, But over time with the familiar faces, they would see the prefrontal cortex light up. And the prefrontal mm. cortex would be like the part of the brain that's like, oh, no, it's okay. You know, like um, if you're doing something new for the first time, your amygdala is just going crazy. But like, let's say like riding a bike, you don't, you know, you're afraid of falling, you're afraid of scraping your knee. That's probably your amygdala telling you like, oh, no, you're going to die. But then over time, as you learn to balance and, you know, you continue to practice, then the prefrontal cortex is the part where it's like, hey, it's okay. You know, like, don't worry. You're safe. You know, you're mm. doing fine just keep going. You can handle this. You can manage this. And so it's like these two parts of the brain where like, they're both like kind of going off and one is kind of helping self-soothe you and self-soothe the other part. So it's like, that part was also interesting to me because I think, you know, not all introverts are fearless. Not all introverts are fearful. Like there's like a wide range, right? And like, you know, public speaking is one of those things where I absolutely hate it. And I think Mm. it is, it sounds like, it's like one of those things where like the amygdala just takes over and you're like freaking out, you're freaking out. But then, you know, the introverts who are able to go up and speak, they've probably just practiced so much that they can handle it, that their prefrontal cortex is telling them like, no, you're fine. Get up there. You can do it. And and then they can go and do it. Yeah, that's true to my experience. I tend to rate introverted. Uh, I remember in third grade, I had to give a book report in front of my class and I had to go after a kid named Mario who was kind of cool. Yeah. And so I was really nervous and like I stuttered through my whole presentation and it was really bad. But I think that I just had 
I was like forced to keep speaking in public uh, in various settings, maybe pushed by my parents a little bit, maybe just from being in some leadership things in middle school and then in college. And so eventually, maybe my prefrontal cortex just got trained to like calm me down a little bit more. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, I have a weird, I have some other weird physical reactions. Like I think that I get inflammation in my sinuses every time I'm about to give a talk because I have to spit a lot before I give a talk. Mm -hmm. It's kind of gross. So maybe my prefrontal, my prefrontal cortex has to be trained to solve that problem too. Yeah, I don't know if your prefrontal cortex can train your body to not react like that. Maybe it can. That would be great. So what does this mean then for, because I think that what you said about us being afraid and through practice um, coming to a place where those fears are controlled and uh, we're able to actually do the task really well, what does that mean for all of us? Like, it it kind of sounds like those fears are a bit unfounded and that it's a really useful skill to have to overcome whatever our amygdalas are telling us whenever we have a new experience. Well, I think like there's a reason why we have the fear and that's just, it's like, you know, you're going into something that you've never experienced before. And so, you know, that's just, it's a natural part of existing. But I think the other part, and this is just true for learning in general, is like we want to be able to jump immediately to being able to ride a two-wheeler, right? Mm. And, you know, when we when we were growing up, we had to do the training wheels. We had to ride a bike at our, you know, with the noisy training wheels helping us along the way, but it would it would get us closer to the place that we wanted to be. So I think, you know, we have to be able, like, we have to be able to figure out the, the steps toward our end goal. And, you know, the steps are going to be smaller, but they're going to be more manageable. They're going to help us to do what we want to do. And it's just going to take time. It's going to take practice. Yeah. And like what happens like when we want to give up along the way, because, you know, sometimes even when we try to break it down to a bite-sized thing, like using training wheels, it's still possible to fall and scrape your knee. Yes. And then it's painful. And so most of us probably just want to stop after that. Yeah. I don't have a good answer to that. All I remember for me is that I remember I was like, okay, I remember one day we like, we were just riding the bike back and forth in the, you know, on the road right in front of our house. And like, I was like, okay, I'm going to learn how to ride the bike without the training wheels because you already could ride your bike without training wheels. Chadra could ride her bike without training wheels. And then I was like, okay, I need to do it. I need to do it. And so I try and I try and I try and I just couldn't, I just couldn't handle it. I couldn't, I couldn't manage it. But then I learned that um, our cousin who was younger than me by like a year, she learned how to ride her bike without mm. training wheels and i think that she learned it there like she she was like visiting us and she wow. learned to ride the bike and then i was like what she's younger than me i have to be able to do this so then i was like i'm gonna do this so then i went out there and i was like i'm gonna learn how to ride the bike and i think i think that like that competitive edge or i don't know what you call that resulted in me learning how to ride my bike and i don't know if that applies to life in general because obviously you know we're like for us like we we feel we feel that pressure of like oh no like we're falling behind or we're not we're not accomplishing as well as whoever else and like i don't know how useful that feeling is in like these more complicated bigger 
type of things. But like for those smaller things, like learning how to ride your bike or public speaking, public speaking, stuff like that. Like it's like competition might be a good motivator in that sense. But I feel like for things that, that really there's not much control for ourselves, like it's harder to to say that competition is what would help us thrive in that case. Like it, mm. to me, there must be something else that, that can help us to thrive in those cases because it's it's like it's just like such a it's just so, so much of a bigger problem. Yeah. And I think that you hit the nail on the head when you said that if it's something that's under our control, competition pushes us to actually do to push our limits to do the things that we actually are capable of, but we never thought we could or never were motivated enough to do because yeah. we were just lazy, basically lazy and, you know, pain averse, but we actually could do it. Mm-hmm. And the competition helps like dislodge our laziness. So we actually push ourselves. Yeah. But then there are other things that are beyond us that maybe they require a collection of skills. And so because we haven't mastered that collection, we couldn't possibly push ourselves that far yet. And then it's just discouraging yeah. to compare ourselves. And it could be depressing instead of motivating. Yeah. Yeah. So I don't know what the answer is. Like, I, I guess part of it is like, if it's if it's like a, a skill that you personally want to master, or you want to improve upon, right? Like competition is one one way to help keep you going and I think it's it's like you know those step counter competitions you have at work or maybe it's even like when you're at the gym and you're trying to do 50 pull-ups and then you see somebody else next to you and they're just you know going two times faster than you and they're able to endure for 10 minutes just pulling doing pull-ups or whatever then you're like oh okay I can do this but for other problems like you know like building a business or relationships or whatever it is like I don't think competition is the answer for those kinds of those kinds of problems. Yeah, that sounds. I mean, it makes sense. Like I remember reading uh, Pete Carroll. Pete Carroll is the head coach of the Seahawks, and he did very well. And so he wrote a book called uh, "Win Forever," yeah. and it's his philosophy of competition. And I can't summarize it right now because I can't remember everything that he said. But it was pretty cool to get this really positive perspective on competition. That's not so much aggressive, but it's about how do you draw out the best performance out of each other. Mm. And that was really cool to see that kind of perspective because I've always thought of competition more in the negative sense because, you know, I grew up playing violin and orchestra and competition always meant that you're trying to beat somebody and take the first chair from them or whatever like that. And they're trying to go after you. Mm-hmm. And I felt like it resulted in a lot more insecurity rather than better performance mm-hmm. a lot of times. Or you just feel like, oh, this kid's a prodigy. So basically there's no point for me to practice more anyway because they're just going to beat me no matter what. And then competition didn't make me practice more. It just made me feel bad. But there was some. there's something different about that concept of like, I'm going to compete at my highest level because it's going to help all, all the people around me to also perform at their highest level. And that's, that's what it takes for us to really raise the bar as a team. Mm-hmm. That was pretty interesting. Hmm. I haven't been able to put it into practice, yeah. but it's it just idea-wise, it kind of changed my perspective. Yeah. You know, even to bring in a little bit of theology into this, like, don't you feel like in the Christian world, competition's kind of looked at as a bad thing? Yeah, I mean, yes and no. It depends kind of on what circle you're in. But I think in general, we do try to we try to eliminate competition because, you know, competition can just cause bad feelings between people and rivalries and, you know, things like that. I guess the question that I have in that case is, you know, like with when it comes to sports and like, you know, team activities like that, it seems really clear what competition looks like, you know, like mm-hmm. you know, every week you will 
people will compete to to be able to play. Like in in tennis, you know, every week you could challenge a team above you. And, you know, if you beat them, then you get to take their spot. They take your spot. And that's how you can kind of, quote unquote, work your way up to the top, you know, to be the top doubles team or the top singles player. Mm. With sports, it's like very clear what competition yields. And, you know, in sports like that, yes, it's an individual thing. Like you're playing, but you are playing as a team. So if you're, if you're all your different doubles teams, you know, the majority of them win their matches win their games and then then the team as a whole wins right and so having the competition each week where you can challenge your the player above you or whatever it's it's a way of like keeping everybody on their toes i guess of like ensuring mm-hmm. that ensuring that they're playing their hardest and you know they're trying to improve but when it comes to to business when it comes to work i don't know it's kind of hard it's hard for for that idea of competition to also be at play there. I don't know why. You mean in the workplace or in the marketplace? Because in the marketplace, we're always competing. Yeah, in the in the workplace, I mean. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, because you kind of have to help each other out. And if you're always competing with each other, you're not really helping each other out, it feels like. Yeah. yeah. And the process has more politics involved because it's not just your – it's not a clear scoreboard the way there is in tennis. Yeah. Yeah, like, yeah, there's just so much more politics when it comes to work than politics in sports, like, you know, because like sports is like, you know what you're measured on. And, you know, you can you have a clear outcome, a win or a loss. Yeah. But when it comes to work, it's like so much murkier than that. The ambiguity really prevents you from having a clear scoreboard most of the time. I don't know. I also found that with when you try to pick a single metric, it can be very easy to get a weird shape or a weird artifact of people's behavior. Like if it's just sales, for example, you just have a sales goal. Yeah. People can end up resorting to weird tactics to get more sales. Some are creative and some are unethical. And it's just kind of like, you know, you don't really know what you're going to get versus in a sports game. I guess in sports too, it happens. People use steroids and things like that yeah, to try to true. increase their performance. Yeah. And then, you know, there are politics at play in sports and, you know, like the size mm-hmm. of their contracts and whatnot all of that is also at play yeah i just feel like it's really helpful you know as christians in technology and business to understand a theology of competition because it's a set it's a part of reality and it's something that i think i was scared to really touch even though i've obviously had to compete but i never really liked it and i never felt at peace with it Mm -hmm. or i never really kind of knew what sense of it was i was at peace with and what sense of it i wasn't because I, I think that viewed from the lens of like, oh, I'm beating them or I'm doing better than them or I'm taking business away from them feels kind of wrong or un- <laughs> unbiblical or something. Yeah. Uh, but the other idea of like, I'm helping people perform at their highest levels and I'm raising the bar and improving lives for our customers and for everybody in the industry, that feels more positive. Mm. But I just wonder like, are they hand in hand or where's the line there? And I also think of just some, you know, taking it down to nuts and bolts of like, let's say like churches that have to compete with each other or ministries that are competing for donor dollars. Right. You know, it starts getting pretty weird to talk about it in terms of competition, but you can't deny that that's really what's happening. Yeah. And I know, you know, like I think the hard part with the competition mindset is that it is like zero sum, right? Like there's one winner and there's one, and there's like a bajillion losers. Right. And mm. Like 
when you're competing for donor dollars, it's like, that's a dollar that could have gone toward, toward, you know, homelessness, but it's going instead towards missions. Right. And it's like, neither of those are bad things, right? You want to, you want to be able to serve all of those, but there's this, this, the sense of, oh, like if it's going to go to that thing, then it's not going to go to these other things. And that's it. Like, it's just like black and white. Mm-hmm. But I also know, you know, there's a desire and there's a call to be more expansive and to think differently beyond just like win, lose, yes, no, you know, like black and white like that. Yeah. And it's like, I think, I don't know, maybe it's just like, you know, the imperfect world being the way it is. Like, it's hard to to not get skewed too much into this really like cynical worldview where it is the zero sum worldview yeah where it is so black and white Mm. but then at the same time like we ourselves are not infinite like we cannot stretch our resources to be infinite god can multiply them which is great Mm -hmm. but us in and of ourselves we are not able to do that and so yeah i don't i don't know i don't know where i'm going with that one but well what, what you said reminded me actually of the story in genesis where abraham has his flocks and a lot his nephew has his flocks and they're kind of competing over the land mm-hmm. like whose flocks gets to pasture where and so he ends up saying to his nephew you know here's here's the lands before us so why don't you pick your side and I'll pick my side and we'll go our separate ways mm-hmm. and lot picks the best part of the land which is near Sodom and Gomorrah very fertile and everything like that figuring that that's the best for his flocks and then so Abraham gets the leftovers <laughs> which is very gracious of him cuz he's actually the older guy mm-hmm. Um, but in his case, God makes a promise to him. It's like, now go look everywhere that you walk, everywhere, everything that you see, I'm going to give you this as your inheritance. And so in some ways there was competition there and Abraham was able to be the gracious one because of the promise of God or because he trusted the Lord and he was, he believed God was going to provide. And that resulted him choosing something that from a competitive perspective may not have made sense. And yet it resulted in something much more fruitful. Kind of what you said, it's not zero sum. Mm -hmm. It's something that went beyond because of his faith and God's promise. And I don't know if that immediately translates to business, but something, you know, it just seems like maybe the issue of competition isn't always the competition itself, which is a good thing, but that we're competing for the wrong things. Mm. We're competing for that comfort, right? And for that abundance and luxury, or we're competing for status, or we're competing for money. And that competition for the wrong thing results in a lot of really messed up behaviors. But if we're competing to trust God more, it results in a different kind of behavior. Mm-hmm. If we're competing to outdo one another in honoring one another and in loving one another, it results in a very different kind of outcome. And I don't know what it would look like yet to do this as a business, but if we could start competing against a different metric, I think it could actually change things significantly, kind of in the same way that you know, with Amazon, Jeff Bezos wanted to say that he wanted to be the most customer-centric company because he believed that through if if he did that and Amazon succeeded, all the competition would end up also competing to be more customer centric, mm-hmm. and it would end up raising the bar for the whole industry where everybody is now fighting over something really awesome, which is to be customer centric and to serve the needs of the customer above and beyond what anybody imagined. And I just I'm hopeful, of course, you know, with with what we do with Theotech, we want to say, what if God is our customer, and we want to compete on that. We want to do that exceptionally well, believing that if we succeed in it. Other people will also want to compete to make God the customer, and that's going to result in something that goes above and beyond, you know, the zero-sum competition that destroys instead of the blue ocean type that results in creativity and innovation and hopefully blesses everyone. Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think, you know, God can use competition to 
further his kingdom. He can use it to cause the little guys to have to be really creative. And mm-hmm. he can, yeah, and he can multiply the work of the few to bless the world. And I think that that is, that's something that, like, when we are competing for the wrong things, like, that's hard. That's something that we just, like, don't think about. Because then I think if we are competing for the wrong things, then we're just going to try to do everything that we can, right, to accomplish mm. the wrong thing. And so, yeah, I thought that was interesting that what you said about that. And I think, I guess, like, with, with like, our, our work, what we're trying to do, it is hard because we're constantly trying wanting to measure ourselves like, oh, like, what's our revenue? And, you know, like, number of users and blah, 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 blah. And not to say that those are bad measures, but it is, you know, it can be discouraging being a small player in such a big world to feel like your impact is nothing. Mm. And for uh, for our audience, because they may not actually know about all the stuff we're up to, like, what is it that we do? Well, we do a lot of different things. <laughs> I mean, the one, the thing that I was thinking about was, was Spiffio with you know, we're trying to make every event multilingual and accessible in any language. And that's that's a very big goal. And, you know, we're just one tiny player trying to make that happen. And it can just be it can be discouraging to to like look around and be like, oh, like, you know, every day there are hundreds of events happening, mm-hmm. thousands of events all around the world. And today, just one. <laughs> yeah. I mean, honestly, I feel like when you said it that way, I felt like I should be really encouraged because it means that there's so much opportunity all around us yeah. Yeah, <laughs> rather than true. discouraged. That's true. And, you know, it's like the other part of this is what we're trying to do is something so weird. So, you know, not on the radar of people and like what we're fighting against, what we're competing against is the status quo. It's not even another company or anything like that. It's just, you know, the way things are and and the way things are today is that most people don't really care about translation or accessibility, or they think it's a nice, nice to have, a nice idea. Yeah, they but... don't know where to start, or they don't think that they have the resources to start. Mm-hmm. So in that sense, what we're competing with is like our customers' dollars being allocated to translation and accessibility in general. Yeah, and and not a specific competitor. Yeah, and so you know, going back to that, I that feeling of like, oh, like we have to compete for these dollars. We have to, you know, like within within the organization's budget. They need to allocate more money towards these things, like towards translation, towards accessibility. And it can be discouraging when they have no budget for those things. I guess what we need to remember is, yeah, you know, God can use the tiny starting budget that they have. God can use just like a few hundred dollars to see where it goes and, you know, to grow the ministry in that way to reach people who don't speak English or to reach people who, you know, have hearing loss, stuff like that. Yeah. And I, I guess for people who don't know, like both Natasha and I, we used to work for Amazon and we left to start Theotech and specifically with this dream of saying God's the customer. God wants churches and really society to be able to serve and welcome people from many languages and people with disabilities. And we knew coming into that, that it wasn't like some amazing lucrative opportunity. It's just something that we believe God desired. And in some ways, I hope that it's kind of like Abraham's journey of faith with Lot and stuff. It's like it's choosing this thing that looks less prosperous, but believing God's promise that this is something God desires, that the kingdom is going to be our inheritance and that it's going to be worthwhile. And we have yet to see that kind of promise fulfilled in its full potential. But we already see those first fruits, I think, where it's not just about little sums of money 
but it's actually the kind of transformation that communities experience when they realize what's possible today that could never be done before. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah, it's like they may not they may not get it yet, but it's like because the technology has changed so much, all this stuff that could never happen before of people from many languages having a single unified experience together in the same place at the same time is actually doable. I don't know what it's going to produce, but it's kind of exciting. Yeah, yeah. And part of it is, you know, like the vision is so big that it really requires God to help us. Like it'd be impossible for us to actually try to execute on this on our own, even if we had, you know, millions of dollars of VC backing. In the end, it's still going to be God that has to make it happen. Amen. We already feel that today. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So we we covered a lot of really interesting topics, everything from introversion and the power of introverts, the book that you referred to. And we also talked about the amygdala and the prefrontal cortex and how it is that uh, we have to overcome the fear that the amygdala gives us when we want to learn new things. And then we also got into the theology of competition. So I felt like that's a pretty good suite of topics there that we talked about. Very, very random. I know. Is there anything, Tosh, that you'd like to say to people who are listening, you know, who might identify what you shared, feeling introverted and not very uh, outgoing, perhaps, or scared to try out new things and to take those risks, uh, or maybe just like intimidated by competition or feeling kind of, you know, like they don't really like it. Is there anything that you'd say for them about how they can still use their gifts and make a contribution that might require some boldness on their part, some risk-taking, some competition, but how they can do that in love and overcome some of those barriers that keep them from exercising their gifts? I would say go with God. I think that it's hard to feel like you're not good enough. And Mm. I'm biased because I am introverted, but I do believe that people who are introverted do have a different perspective than, you know, the loudest people in the room. So it's good for you to be there, be there to represent, be there to, and, you know, don't, I mean, it's cliche to say, don't be afraid to speak your mind, but just don't undervalue yourself in those spaces. It's going to be a process. I'm still in the process. And obviously Mm -hmm. I hate public speaking. So this is, this is your sneaky way of actually recording a podcast. I see, even though I told you to test it. I know. I mean, you're the one who offered to test this. So this is not sneaky at all. This is actually recording a real test podcast with Zencaster. No, it is. It who is, is not a sponsor. It is sneaky. It is sneaky because I thought it was going to be like a 10 minute thing. Well, I didn't have any show notes prepared. So uh, it's completely improvised. Sure. Yeah. But I think that, I right. think that you're one of those like you're one of those introverts that have managed to become like an extrovert. Oh, I've transformed. I think so. Interesting. Yeah. You've you've evolved. You're like a Pokemon. Oh, I've evolved to the next level. Christophus has become Chris Christopherson. I don't yeah, know. Not to say that extroverts are like a level up. I don't think they are. But I would say this, even if I have slightly more extroverted tendencies than you, I realize that my job in the room, in a meeting or in a setting, if I have that ability to open up to lead conversations, my job isn't to dominate the conversation with my ideas but it's to create space to ensure that we get a good variety and selection of voices and ideas to hear kind of a good 360 degree perspective. So every time that you speak up in a meeting or something, I actually value it. I appreciate it. Like this morning, we were talking about thinking about a free tier for Spiffio and you were suggesting, what if we did a a giveaway instead to test the waters? And I like that idea because it lets us do things while maintaining the value of what we offer um, and still delivering value to customers. So like, I felt like whenever you do speak up and give ideas, it's a good thing. And I just have to affirm that and then make sure that there's space 
if I talk too much or if other people talk too much so that we can hear, you know, your voice and the voices of other people who might be quieter, but actually have really great contributions to make the, the conversation. So that's how I've changed because I know I know what it's like on the other side where in many meetings, I've been the one who stays quiet until the very end. And I might say something for like three minutes at the end Yeah. instead of, you know, being in the middle of this whole crosstalk. And that's because I am an introvert in the sense that I process things internally rather than processing things out loud. And I get kind of annoyed if I'm with too many extroverts who are trying to do their thinking out loud because I felt like they're imposing on me when I've already figured it out in my own head. Yeah. Well, I <laughs> Well, okay. So in terms of like trying to incorporate more introverts in a meeting conversation or whatever it is, I feel like the hard part is there's still like a, a bias or a tendency in a group setting to to listen to the loudest voice. And the loudest voice tends to be an extrovert, right? And so sometimes it what it means to listen to somebody to to, to like give voice to the introverts in a group is like you have to change the mode of communication so sometimes it means like everybody shut up write down your ideas and then submit them anonymous anonymously right so sometimes uh -huh. it requires a change in how a meeting is run for that to happen because even if you try to make the you know if, if you're a facilitator and you try to make space for the quiet voice in the room like that will get you part of the way but sometimes like even when that happens, people won't listen. They'll they'll still, you know, like they'll they'll listen to the introvert for however long they speak. And if they're an introvert, they probably are gonna try to minimize the amount of time that they take. Yeah. And so, you know, they're gonna be speaking for maybe like, you know, two, three minutes. They're gonna they're gonna try to condense all of their thoughts into the most efficient way possible. But, you know, in, in a meeting that's sixty minutes long, that's like a tiny portion and and you know, it can easily get drowned out even if you do try to like give them room. So what you described is sound kind of like technology for facilitation, just to ensure that everyone has uh, equal time or equal voice at the table. Yeah. Or, you know, just that weight, that equal weight is given to what they say, you know, even though like they aren't physically saying it. Because the challenge with that is that you do create a different hierarchy for people who can write well versus those who can't. <laughs> That's true. Yeah. But I think that it could still be preferable to everyone just being quiet and only two people talking in the room, obviously. Yeah. And I think, you know, I think it's just one of those things where it, it does take, like, it's not like the solution, the solution for everything. I think to draw out ideas that come from everybody and not just the loudest people requires creativity and it requires, you know, a lot of different experiments and trying new things and you know, cooperation with the people in the room. Yeah. But I think that at least if we can't say that here's the solution, we can say that being aware of this, right, having this mindset, even realizing that regardless of accessibility and language barriers, uh, there already are kind of differences between people that make it so that they're not everyone's voice is really heard. So just being aware of that as a facilitator or a leader can go a long way in getting a 360 degree perspective on different issues and decisions that need to be made. Mm-hmm. I think that this is good. Thanks so much, Natasha, for doing this episode of the Theotech Podcast. Thank you, everyone, for listening. If you enjoyed this and would like more content, please remember to uh, subscribe uh, to our podcast on Apple Podcasts or in the Google Play Store. And if you want to support the creation of these podcasts, you can do so on our Patreon. Uh, so thank you very much, everyone, and we'll talk to you next time.